take a deep breath Take the higher road That's what they always say As if they know the way They won't take it from me But don't ever doubt yourself Cause life ain't just a dream You make your own So kick and scream The people will like With a never ending force You never had the chance So what you waiting for The day has come my friend Cause this is war I just came back from a wonderful weekend where the nurses gathered for the very first time in a formal summit. It was called American Freedom Nurses Summit Agenda. And we had over 15 speakers. Some of the titles, um, some of the people that spoke was um, Shelly Candelaria, who wanted to talk about building back on the side of good and not evil. Um, Sarah Mitchell, advocating for your loved ones, avoiding the deadly hospital protocols. Michelle Peterson, uh, DNP, doctor of nurse practitioner, successfully treating patients in the fight against COVID. Melissa Schreibfeder, functional medicine for nurses, bringing health back to healthcare. It was an amazing time, guys. We, it was a full day agenda. All of these nurses that were left the allopathic sick care system because they could not compromise their ethical principles to continue on in that system and also to, you know, to honor their own autonomy, you know, much less the patient's autonomy and their right to choose and informed consent. And then I hear about this New York City nurse strike. And people asking me what my opinion is on it, as though I'm supposed to be like, yeah, the nurses are out there. The nurses are picketing and be excited. But guess what they're picketing for? They're picking because they don't have enough help in the hospital. And so today I invited my friend Beth on who left the hospital system because she was not going to participate in the experimental injection, you know, um, and, and, and all of the issues that were happening with the patients in the hospital. She was saying, I cannot be a part of it. So I wanted to bring her on today and get her feeling on what she thinks about the New York City nurse strike. Welcome back. Thanks, Jody. Super um, excited to be here ready to kind of dive in and uh, share my humble opinion about everything that's going on um, on that East Coast and with that uh, with that strike happening. So I'm happy to be here. Yeah. Okay. Because I am I am fired up. I mean, th this really pisses me off. And I'll tell you what kind of prompted that was um, seeing one of our organizations and I won't name names um, because I, I, I don't do things in anger and I need to sit on it. But one of these um, organizations that kind of just developed to help the frontline workers uh, made a post and actually tagged me in it and said, we support New York City nurses strike. Um, let's gather together to change legislation so this never happens again. 
And I commented on there, I don't support this. Like, I mean, I do for the, you know, the safe staffing ratios, but why did it take that for the nurses to gather together? I mean, it seems like a very selfish, essentially selfish um, strike to me. Uh, what are your thoughts? So I, I mean, I totally agree with that perspective. Um, and I think it's, I mean, this is, this is maybe a, a side note, but I think it's very, very interesting when nurses get highlighted for what seems to be the, uh, I guess, a popular narrative around it, right? Like, so in the beginning, we were the frontline heroes and we were hailed as, you know, these life-saving people in the hospital taking care of these COVID patients. But then we went from heroes to zeros real quick when we decided to not participate in the experimental jab. But now we're heroes again because we're out there and we're putting ourselves on the picket lines and we're, you know, kind of doing this quote unquote noble thing, right? And it's just always very interesting to look at nursing as a profession and how it gets kind of used and manipulated because we are a trusted profession. Um, you know, I I carry my RN, you know, as, a, as kind of a badge of honor. It's well respected. I um, find it flattering when people say, Oh, gosh, yeah, my mom was a nurse or my you know, so it, it carries some of that kind of prestige with it. But the thing that is, I think, most concerning about this particular aspect and what's happening with the strike is that it feels like a result of a lack of forward thinking. So you know, a couple of years ago, when they started implementing this, they these mandates and this mandatory injection, there were folks on one particular, and, and again, it's not a one side or the other issue, although it's very easy to put it that way just for conversation's sake. But let's say that my side is, is that I want autonomy for everyone, not just myself. So I was in that position where we're battling for everyone, because typically what I have found is that the people with somewhat of this perspective can kind of see the forest through the trees and we can see the trickle down effects of implementing things such as mandates and what that's going to happen. And if we don't stand up for ourselves in that moment, there is going to come a time in the future that is going to be kind of a ripple effect of the lack of standing up for ourselves in that moment. So our advocating for not implementing a mandate had the ripple effect of, uh, or, or not succumbing to that, I guess. Nurses were terminated. Nurses like myself chose to resign. Um, you know, there was an automatic shortage created by a mandate that should have never been put in place to begin with. And now those nurses that perhaps felt backed into the corner did not have the um, you know, the strength, the courage to either stand up and fight or to walk away or, you know, uh, be terminated. They have now found themselves in a position where they're bearing the brunt of really poor staffing ratios. And I just can't help but think that a lot of those nurses did not look ahead and see what the uh, what the downfall of that would be. And if they would have, if they could have foreshadowed that and, and maybe stepped out of kind of that moment in time where they felt pressure, they would have advocated for us as much as we ultimately were advocating for them, which is really, you know, the big picture because now their, imp their lives are impacted. Their potential licenses are on the line for, for these staffing ratios. So 
you know, yeah, long, no, long answer, I guess. No, <laughs> you know, I, no, I hear you on the forward thinking part of it. And I completely agree because I felt the same. I, I thought, you know, you, you know, guys, do you know what's going to happen when you lose these, these experienced nurses? Because ultimately at the end of the day, it was the dissenting critical thinkers. And those are your most powerful nurse on that unit. That mm-hmm. is the staunch patient advocate. And, and also, you know, has some self-respect too. So I understand the whole, the forward thinking. And I completely agree with you because they weren't looking at what this will potentially do. And for you and I, um, I'll speak for you. You, we both were like, Oh my gosh, you know what's going to happen? You know what's going to mm-hmm. happen, guys? You are going to be short staff. You are going to have new grad nurses on here that, you know, d- don't have the experience running these hospitals. And then where will you be left at? But for me, and ultimately is that those nurses that essentially stayed and did not honor what their colleagues, you know, um, choices, they weren't looking at their ethical principles and the oath that they took in the, in the first place. Yeah, I totally agree with that. Um, It's, it's so interesting because I think that as much as this is like an introspective aspect of like, no, I get my body autonomy, I get to do all of this by doing that for yourself you then understand what it actually means to do that for someone else. I can't advocate for someone else if I'm not willing to do it for myself. And I I unfortunately think that that has kind of trickled into nursing where we don't even feel strong enough to advocate on our own behalf, let alone then advocate on a patient's behalf and certainly not for one another as colleagues, just as you mentioned, like, you know, us standing up for our own individual autonomy and the ethics and the morals and all of the things that we signed on to when we decided to, to take this oath and be, you know, healthcare providers, it it was, it was not matched. It, it, It wasn't even. And, um, you know, and, and now I think also as a result, it's sort of like, you know, we, what would things have looked like had we gotten that support from perhaps even people that wanted to take, uh, to take the jab, right? Like, even if there were people that were saying, nope, yes, I believe that this is the right thing to do. However, I still support you in that decision. And the reason why I'm going to do it is because I can see what could potentially happen down the road. There wasn't even any of that um, happening amongst you know, our, our colleagues, there was no conversation, there was no discourse surrounding the issue. And, you know, the other interesting thing that I think about is, I'm sure that there's going to be some sort of spin when it comes to these nursing ratios, um, because nothing likes to get pointed back at the mandates, nothing likes to get pointed back at the jab as, 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 a potential, you know, misstep or an injury or an adverse event. Nothing ever likes to be pointed in that direction. And so I think that what we potentially could hear from this is that, oh, well, the hospitals are just so overrun. There's so much flu. There's so much RSV that is making it appear as though 
the patient's numbers are so high that that's why it looks like there aren't enough nurses. And I would just really caution everyone to use some common sense and critical thinking when you look at it from that scenario, because for the last two years, we had no flu. So um, just for our listeners too, just so, you know, people that we're, you know, international, our show. Um, So right now we have two large um, New York City hospitals that have um, law or 3,500, a, a total of 7,000 nurses have um, uh, went on strike. And so what is happening there is they're saying that um, the ERs are overcrowded. Patients have been in the hallway. This is prior to them going on strike. Uh, and that's because they're saying that the patient to staff ratio or patient to nurse ratios are unsafe, which this has been a problem in a lot of hospitals anyway prior to this. But now when you lose, you know, approximately 25% or more of your workforce, of course, this is going to be a bigger problem. So 7,000 nurses not showing up to work is a really, really big deal, right? And, And for me, I look at it like, they didn't speak up when you wanted to honor your own autonomy, Beth, right? They mm-hmm. didn't speak mm-hmm. up and rally against you because they were protecting their paycheck. And now they're striking essentially um, again for, for money reasons, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, it is, it's just very, very interesting Um, because again, I, I will go back to the fact that my fight for my personal fight was ultimately the fight, knowing that if I demonstrated how to stand up for myself, that hopefully that would spur in someone, the notion that they, in fact, were going to have to stand up for themselves one day. Right. Mm -hmm. And, and you can't kind of reverse engineer that. Like I, I love my fellow nurses. I still think that it's a great profession. Do I think that over the last couple of years, we slid down a very slippery slope? Absolutely. But to kind of come back and like you said at the beginning, almost expect or that the that the expectation is, is that you're going to garner all of this support, I think is a really unfortunate position to take because where where were you guys? Where were you guys when all of this was happening and there wasn't that same energy? There was not the energy for um, support in general, um, you know, when when we were all faced with these, you know, these life life changing decisions that we all had to make as individuals. Um, and I do also think that it's really interesting that Again, for whatever reason, um, time, place, why it's making headline news now, yes, 7,000 nurses on strike is very significant, but we have faced, uh, like you mentioned, staffing issues before. We've right, faced think, them in the past. We've, we've, we've had to cross-train people to go work in other departments. We've had to, I mean, this, is, this in, in the realm of healthcare is not a new 
It's not a new concept. Now, we have had something that's kind of like the common denominator across the country of what has been a new introduction, which is a significant loss in our workforce. Maybe we should be examining that as a significant significant contributing factor into why now it seems, you know, um, uh, at, a, at a greater, um, you know, ratio or a, po- a poor ratio of, of patients to staff, but it's nothing that we typically wouldn't talk about kind of every winter, right? And especially here, like Arizona, we have a significant um, population of people that only live in our state during the winter months, and we automatically would see a rise in our patient volume. So, uh, Again, I just always think it's very interesting to look at um, how they're going to take a piece of information that has been in existence for a long time, make it the star of the show when really something else is the star of the show. And that is, in my opinion, the reduction in our workforce, you know, kind of as a result of these mandates that have been happening over the last couple of years. Yeah, I remember, I, I want to say that it was last year, uh, they, they were trying to gather the nurses in D.C., like a million nurse march. And, um, and you know, I had heard about it and I was like, oh, good, the nurses are gathering together. But then when I um, reached out to one of the organizers and I said, are we going to be speaking on a vaccine mandates? And they said, no. It's only um, for safe staffing ratios mm-hmm. and um, making accountable the the violence that um, nurses often face, you know, from their patients. Because you know, oftentimes when a patient, um, uh, you know, assaults a nurse, they plead out, so nothing ever happens, nothing ever comes of it. And so they were, you know, wanting to strike or march on D.C. for those reasons. And I thought, oh, my gosh, how are we not missing? How are we missing the big picture here? And this is mandate. How are we as a profession um, seemingly outwardly supporting an experimental injection for people that aren't even at risk for it? Uh, on humanity, it, it, it was mind blowing to me. But they, but they mm-hmm. said no. They're staying away from that topic. And I said, well, I'm not rallying people to come and support that. You know, although I do support those two um, points, absolutely I do. Um, but I think nurses just haven't used their voice. Uh, we have a very, very powerful voice, and and we haven't used it effectively. I agree. I think that there is a lot of um, internal pressure to just kind of put your head down and and keep going with the flow. I think that there's also a lot of physician intimidation. I think that there are just a lot of things at play. And as you and I both know, and this isn't to kind of toot our own horns, but it takes a backbone and it takes thick skin and um, it takes uh, an attitude of not compromising your, you know, personal moral values, your ethics, independent of your employment, moral standards and ethics, right? It starts at, you know, your kind of human core level. And um, like it's, it, it is, it's, 
Yeah. Having, having integrity and standing up for what you believe in and not backing down and not allowing um, the judgments um, of others sway your decision for what you truly know is best for yourself. And um, it, it is unfortunate because again, like I spoke to, I would not have been the nurse that I was in the capacity to care for people in general, if I didn't have that within myself, I can't imagine being a nurse that would get, you know, potentially yelled at by a physician at the nurse's station, and then somehow be able to go in and, and, and advocate for my patient to that physician, like that, that's just such a disconnect to me. And um, I think that it is an overall issue that we have with the profession in general. But I think, um, you know, just like with a lot of stuff uh, over the last few years, it's been politicized instead of humanized. And, um, you know, that's just something that everyone is going to have to either realize very quickly, or they're going to just be continue, continue kind of victims of that, of that endless cycle. So, yeah. So, you know, moving forward, you know, when I posted that, my response that saying, no, I don't support this um, for these sole reasons. You know, how am I going to get behind uh, my brothers and sisters in nursing when they didn't get behind, you know, the others, you know, the refusal of the patient's bill of rights, the restraint and seclusion we put on people, the the um, discrimination that we allow to take place between the vaccinated and the unvaccinated. Mm-hmm. I, I, I won't stand up and support them in this mission until they, I mean, it's essentially like, who am I going to align with? I can't align with that when you're, you know, missing the elephant in the room. Mm-hmm. You know, to, you bring, they need to stand up and, and, and realize that what they allowed to happen, the bullying, the coercion, the intimidation um, amongst their co-workers and the patient was highly unacceptable. Mm-hmm. And, and I don't, I, I just wanted to, t- to touch on this because as you're talking, I'm, I'm, I'm literally visualizing, you know, being a, a nurse back on the floor and, you know, some of the, the articles that we had read were talking about how they're tired of patients in hallways and, you know, overrun ERs. And again, I, I guess I just have to think back to the peak COVID days where we weren't hearing about any patients in hallways. And yet these hospitals were supposedly overrun with patients. Mm-hmm. We we never heard about that. So even from a staffing ratio, I never once heard about a nurse saying, oh, I was taking care of four COVID patients in the hallway. Right. No, there no. weren't patients in the hallway. In fact, these what, what I will also comment on is I'm curious as to whether or not any of these nurses were the nurses that ended up spending the majority of their day at the nurse's station while their COVID patients were alone in their rooms, you know, to be left to, to feed themselves and, and lay in their, you know, beds all day long with minimal interaction from their nursing staff because they were a COVID patient. Like, you know, are we talking out of both sides of our mouths here? Like, did it only 
you know, were we only concerned, uh, you know, now that they're not COVID patients and they're in the hall, or, you know, I, I know a lot of nurses that, that made comments about, boy, they spend a lot of time at the nurse's station because they can just close the door and they don't have to go in and they, you know, it, it's, yeah, it's, re- it's real interesting. It's real interesting how that happens. The COVID unit where these patients came in with these BS um, assumed positive diagnosis, which automatically put them in isolation. They were basically the easiest patient to care for in the hospital because we did nothing for them mm-hmm. except throw an oxygen um, can or nasal cannula on them, maybe uh, an O2 monitor, right? And give mm-hmm. them remdesivir once a day. Mm-hmm. We weren't doing antibiotics, hanging antibiotics and, and all the, you know, the complex medical situations, essentially. And even you're right, even if that patient was a complex patient, just because they had the diagnosis of COVID positive, it limited the nurses time in that room. And certainly physicians, mm-hmm. well, they weren't mm-hmm. going in and talking about you're going in and properly assessing these, these people. But I, I did right. you with a, a utilization and review nurse um, last week, I believe it was. And she said that she could not believe the amount of admissions that are coming to the hospital with flu and RSV. She said, it's way, there's way more people in the hospital now than there were in um, even last year in 2021 or 2022. My gosh, my years are flying by. Um, But it's an increased admission uh, rate. And even for the young, which also led her down the critical thinking path of why do we have so many uh, babies under one years old testing positive for RSV? Was it is this like a, a safety signal that we should see um, that's occurring because the mother vaccinated and while she was pregnant and we, because we don't know guys, all these kids that are just, you know, being born or, or a year old or so, they, a lot of them were, you know, the, the, the babies of vaccinated mothers. So nobody's, you know, asking all those questions, but what we are seeing, and I want to talk with Beth on when we come back from break, is all of these deaths that we're seeing um, on, on TV and all of these children that are suffering, um, you know, significant medical issues and they're vaccinated. So guys, you are listening to Nurses Out Loud. We are on air five days a week on America Out Loud Talk Radio where you have a different nurse host daily speaking her truth and telling you, you know, what she thinks is happening. So we'll be right back after break. It's time in this We know you love the versatility and portability of the Genesis Fogger, but sometimes you just want to set it and forget it. Well, We heard you. Introducing the UX4 HOCL Atomizer. This stationary unit quietly protects you and is perfect for smaller spaces. With over a quarter million units sold in Japan, it's now available in the United States. 
visit genesisfogger.com forward slash out loud to see the UX4 in action and receive a 15% discount on either Fogger with promo code OUTLOUD. With Genesis, you're ready for anything. While many things we hear are lies, we know one thing is true. Viruses exist and people get sick. Look, there's no guaranteed way to keep from getting sick, but there is a way to reduce your chances. Cofix RX, the original povidone iodine-based antiviral nasal spray that you hear Dr. McCullough talking about, provides an additional invisible layer of protection from colds, flu, coronaviruses, and more. Click the banner ad on americaoutloud.com and use promo code OUTLOUD for 20% off. Stay protected with Cofix RX. America Out Loud beats to the pulse of our nation. We know when you're angry, you're troubled, confused, glad, and thankful. We know you because we are you. Join us as we explore the most important issues of our time. We are America Out Loud Talk Radio. Liberty and justice for all. These days, every time you turn on the news, it seems like there's a new threat to your health. Maintaining a strong immune system has never been more critical. Advanced Nutrition Company, Healthy Cell, created Immune Super Boost to help you strengthen your immunity. Unlike other supplements that don't work, Immune Super Boost is not a pill. It's a gel you swallow with ultra-absorption of science-backed nutrients proven to support immunity, like vitamin C, D3, zinc, elderberry, and echinacea. These physician-formulated gels come in a small gel pack. Tear off the top and shoot it down, or mix it in water. Boost your immunity. Go to HealthyCell.com and use limited time code OUTLOUD for 25% off your first order. Risk-free. Love it or your money back. Guaranteed. HealthyCell.com, code OUTLOUD. HealthyCell.com, code OUTLOUD. All right. Welcome back, guys. I, Beth, I want to kind of shift the conversation off of um, or, or into all of these stories and articles that we are seeing of people dropping dead or people, you know, suffering cardiac arrest or strokes. Uh, and this is in a population where this absolutely should not be happening. They're young. They have no comorbidities. They're athletes. And, you know, I know that there was something um, uh, that they had talked about on, um, in 2020, antibody-dependent enhancement. And I'm hearing reports of this kind of happening in China. But what we're seeing now, it, it's just such a plethora of them. And we don't want to, I, I want to, like, elevate these stories essentially because I think people for so long have felt like you know I'm not going to say it was the vaccine or even though I'm suspicious of it I can't say that to my family and friends um, because they're going to think I'm crazy and then the people that do say it uh, they're you know they get a little bit of sympathy and say yeah you know it's very rare it's very rare that it's happening. Um, I'm sorry that that happened to you, essentially. You know, do you have any thoughts on that? 
I think it's such a such a tricky conversation to have because the unfortunate part um, is that uh, so much of the groundwork I think around vaccines in general has been laid throughout the years to uh, target people that question them or that are maybe a little bit suspicious of them. So, so you know, there there's all those words and there's all those labels and there's all those terms out there that already exist that are very, very easy to kind of hang on to. And I think that the unfortunate part is, is that a lot of what we've been saying or been cautioning or been questioning is now kind of coming to fruition. And so I, I think that if you are on the 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 side of perhaps you took it um, or you know someone that took it and that has had a significant side effect or even potentially died and there's maybe no you know no one saying to you oh well yes the vaccine caused the death you know nobody I, I don't know that we're ever going to necessarily hear that um, specifically but unknown etiology that's what right. Right. We hear unknown etiology. We hear, you know, it's, um, I, I can't help, but I think we've all, um, you know, been looking at SIDS, well, sudden infant death syndrome, and now we have SADS, sudden adult death syndrome. Healthy babies just don't die, and healthy adults just don't die. These are, these are things that we should really be stopping and assessing. Have we had a common denominator intervention, right? Like I use this analogy when I'm talking to my friends all the time. If, if you had a baby that has an anaphylactic reaction to a food, your pediatrician is going to ask you what you fed that baby that day. And if every time you give your baby peanut butter, they seem to have a, a you know an increased reaction or something happens to them, the very first thing your pediatrician is going to say is, whoa, let's not give that kiddo peanut butter anymore. That is a, a perfect example of where you know, your, your correlation doesn't equal causation until it does, until you've had enough examples of an intervention being done and there being um, an, an adverse uh, result from that intervention. And, you know, the, the really hard part is, is that for so many people who were led astray, I think, through this process, um, mentally, spiritually, physically, emotionally, and who took it, that is the hardest pill to swallow. It's also the hardest pill to swallow to maybe look at someone who dies suddenly, who appears to be perfectly healthy, and then do you think in the back of your head, could this possibly happen to me? Or you have the other thought of, well, no one I know has died suddenly, so that can't possibly be it. I'm doing great. So that can't possibly be it. So it becomes almost dismissive. And, you know, I think that that's where really that challenging conversation comes in. Okay, well, that's fine. My kid's not allergic to peanut butter. Does that mean that I don't believe you when when you tell me that your child's allergic to peanut butter? Or do I have to see it for myself and give them a peanut butter and jelly sandwich? No, I'm going to believe you when you drop your kid off at my house for a play date. Just like if my spouse or my mother or my father or anyone in my life, you know, did this one intervention and they are otherwise healthy with no other problems, I'm going to have to start connecting some dots. And 
you know, especially in children, I think that's the most terrifying aspect for me personally, as a mother and as somebody who loves kids and, um, you know, who would feel really, really, uh, I, I don't, I honestly, I don't know how I would feel if I was a parent and I made that decision um, for my child, independent of whether I felt pressured to or whether our, my pediatrician told me that that was the best thing to do for my child, and then something happened to my child. I don't know what that would feel like. And I think that it's kind of a double, uh, a double whammy of um, kind of agony is losing a child and then having that parent potentially question the, the decision that they made on that child's behalf. Yeah. And then, and then let's add to it that they, won't even speak out against it because they're afraid of being shunned. So even mm-hmm. though in, in, mm-hmm. their, in their heart and their soul, they're, they think, oh my gosh, was it from, do they have subclinical myocarditis because of the vaccine? And then now they're out there running on the field and, and you know, dropping dead or having to get rushed to the emergency room because this, this was a possibility and, and, and having to admit it and then not being able to say to your family or friends, wow, well, they, they just got the vaccine, like, you mm-hmm. know, yesterday or uh, two weeks ago. And, and so now that's created a culture of, and that's what propaganda is supposed to do is to silence people from speaking truth, right? Or even if it's just yeah. truth. And we have a whole plethora of people. I mean, I'm sure when people find out your position on how you feel about this and they find out my position, they cannot wait to tell me their story. And they tell me their story. Oh my gosh, my dad, this happened. My son, this happened. You know what I mean? And yeah. so they, they haven't told that to anyone. It was like a, a, a dirty little secret that they were hiding. You know, it's really interesting because I, I, I don't know as a parent uh, between myself and my son's father how I would ever relinquish any sort of power to anyone who thinks that they would know my child better than I do in any capacity, right? So, uh, you know, oftentimes when I'm talking to parents about this and making other decisions, um, you know, for their children or maybe moving forward, I've talked to a lot of parents that are questioning, you know, childhood vaccines now moving forward, or they're asking me, hey, what questions do you ask? You know, things like that. I I encourage parents, you know your child better than anyone. If you think that this particular thing was the thing that caused, you know, your child to have X, Y, and Z, and that goes for anything, right? We wouldn't question it if it were an antibiotic. We wouldn't question it if it were a, you know, a lotion that they put on their body. We would be speaking out against it. These moms would probably be on Facebook being like, don't ever go to this store and buy this brand of lotion again because my kid got a rash, right? But there is such a stigma around vaccines because we are told from day one that they are good for our health, that we aren't necessarily healthy without them. And so I think for any parents that maybe are listening that either something has happened to your child or you don't want something to happen to your child as a result of this particular intervention, 
stand on the firm foundation that nobody knows your child better than you do. And that it is, it, it should be your honor to stand up for that child and, and their well-being, and um, to make sure that if something, you know, did happen to their health, that maybe you feel, uh, you know, emboldened to share that story with someone else so that that could help prevent it from happening to another child. But and, and um, we need to know that nurses and doctors, um, our training on on vaccines are very minimal, like. Mm-hmm maybe a day maybe maybe a day an hour not even a day an hour um and they brush over it and they say okay yeah this is vaccines i don't even think i heard of the bears before you know before covid right um because well, i didn't work in a in a uh you know an immunization clinic for it um but mm-hmm. people also need to know is that the training that nurses and doctors receive on vaccines are pretty much they are good. They are safe. And mm-hmm. that is just absolutely not true on so many levels that I'm coming to find out since my mm-hmm. eyes were open. Like personally mm-hmm. for me, I will never inject anything into my child again that resembles a vaccine. Like literally. Um, yeah. I, I met so many vaccine injured people this weekend. And then I met so many brave um, strong, resilient of people that have been fighting against, you know, the anti-vaxxers, let's just call them that. Cause that's, right. that's what they call them. And they've been in this fight for 20, 30, 40 years. And I'm like, Oh my gosh, I didn't know. I'm sorry. I, I believed what the, what my education taught me. I'm sorry. And somebody had said to me, you know, an anti-vaxxer is not born just because one day you wake up and say, I'm not going to give the vaccination. An anti-vaxxer is usually born from a parent that has a vaccine injured child. Yeah, I think, you know, you know, kind of my story, Jody, but I've been in this for almost 13 years now with my son. And that was a route that I chose not to take for him. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, Yeah. And I read everything that I could get my hands on. And, um, you know, I, I, I guess, I guess it goes back to, I, I don't believe that God makes mistakes and I don't believe that, you know, our bodies aren't capable of, you know, fighting off a a, a limiting viral, a self-limiting viral infection, right? Like I, I think that there are significantly larger fish that we end up frying in our um, existence from a bodily standpoint. And, um, you know, I feel really blessed to have kind of had eyes to see all of those years ago. And I definitely think that it prepared me for this season over the last couple of years. This was nothing new. I knew exactly where this was going. And I wish that that also could be appreciated um, in sometimes the conversations that you have with people who love to use the term anti-vaxxer or who love to, to label. And 
what I always find is that the people that use those labels are typically incredibly uneducated. And, and until you've read everything that I've read, you know, like I, I, I will have a conversation with you, but I would encourage you to read what I've read. And then if you come to a different conclusion, great. But, you know, so there's just, that's a good point that you make about the, the people that want to use that term, because even prior to, to, um, COVID, I, I had vaccinated, you know, all my kids and mm -hmm. I'm fully vaccinated. And when I realized, I mean, when I would meet somebody and they were like, oh, they're an anti-vaxxer, I was like, oh, there must just be a reason. I respected that. I never mm -hmm. used the term anti-vaxxer and I certainly never, you know, called them out and, and been like, they're crazy. We're not going to be their friends. <laughs> right. It's, it's, it's actually really fascinating um, to have, I've had many a conversations with physicians um, a, a, about that. And, and it is just a clear demonstration of a little bit of education goes a long way in your confidence when you're talking about things of this nature. And the other thing too, is that, you know, I think as parents, we inherently want to do what's best for our children and doing what's best depends on, I think, the the voices that you're hearing and the voices that you're allowing to speak to you and how much trust you're putting in those people, right? And and not that I think that, you know, I don't think that all these pediatricians are out there just, you know, running rampant and 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 not doing what they also think is best. But again, I've said it time and time again, I would I will challenge a pediatrician to a conversation, just a general conversation. I will ask them for very specific pieces of data that they won't be able to provide. So that automatically gives me room for pause. And specifically when it comes to the COVID vaccine, I, again, just can't fathom trusting a pharmaceutical product more than I trust my child's own body to a survival percentage of 99.8%. Yeah. I trust my child in every other aspect of his life 99.8% of the time. And, you and I guess if you're a parent and you don't, maybe you should have like your kid in a padded room or in a bubble or something, but they certainly shouldn't be walking. They sh certainly shouldn't be playing any sports. They certainly shouldn't be using scissors, right? Like your risk of something, you, your risk of cutting yourself with scissors is greater than your child's risk of dying for COVID, yet you let them use scissors and you've done no intervention for them. Well, and you know, you said something that just really was um, a, a, a cathartic moment for me just now. I have been preaching literally that the death rate on COVID in mm -hmm. children um, for the last three years. I was following those numbers very, very closely, and they are extremely low, like 99.999. Yeah, I probably even, yeah, I gave I gave COVID a little bit too much credit there on my 99.8%, right? Right, but it's, um, and, and so I would say to people, like, why would you participate in an experimental, never-before-used technology and biologic agent for something that doesn't even affect your kids. Well, when you, mm -hmm. when I say that and what you just said, I thought, oh my gosh, and I'm sending them 
you know, to the Weld Healthy Child visits, visits, thinking that I'm doing my, you know, due diligence as a parent for something that probably they never even needed. Like, you know, I was hearing about like the measles. Measles was already pretty much wiped off before we even came out with the first vaccine. I think it was in the 60s. So why did we even start injecting when there was no issue with it? And, you know, measles historically, like, you know, it's a childhood disease, like chickenpox. Why are we creating something completely brand new and not allowing nature and the immune system, you know, to take its course? So now Mm -hmm. I look at it and that gives me even more empathy and grace to people who did inject their kids. Because I blindly let them get shot up at, you know, three months old, six months old, 12, you know, mm-hmm. like. Well, what is interesting, and, and I think that that's a great perspective to take, Jody. And I think that it is, it's, it's hard to pump the brakes, right? Like if we, it's it, that, that cliche saying, no better, do better. I think that that is like such a challenging thing to do, right? Like, I think we all know how great exercise is for us. Do we do it enough? Probably not. We know about our diet. Do we eat, you know, as well as we should? Probably not. Do we try? But for some reason, this particular topic is so challenging for parents to pump the brakes on. I don't think that they feel um, encouraged to ask questions. I think they feel intimidated. I think they feel like they are going to be labeled. And so once you're kind of like floating down that river, I think it's very, very, very hard to get off. And I think that a lot of people feel like, well, I can you pick and choose? Can I do some? Can I do not? And so I would render a guess that for a lot of parents um, who have done childhood vaccines for their children, this just came as par for course. Because we haven't asked any questions about the last ones. Our kids are quote unquote fine, right? Sure, they've got asthma and they've got eczema and they've had um, tubes in their ears for ear infections. And, you know, they've got all of the things that are literally listed as side effects on the vaccine inserts, but those are just considered normal for, for kids to have nowadays. And so they just kind of jumped on and they did it. And now the only you know, again, my heart wrenching like issue with this is all of the unknown, at least if you did the MMR, the MMR has been around for however many years, we've got some pretty significant clinical data gathered on that, right? Maybe 15, 20 years of of data that we could go back and look at. Underreported, sure, but there's still something to look at. We literally have nothing on this. And, and, and I don't know that if you asked a parent, could you tell me one ingredient that they'd be able to, you read the back of the macaroni and cheese box to make sure that it's gluten-free, but you didn't ask any questions about what's being injected into your child under the guise of it's for their health, just like we've been under the guise that they're for their health, you know, for however however old they are. So I have a little bit of empathy for parents in that regard. Um, But I think also just by nature of who I am as a human, um, you know, the other person in me wants to kind of light that fire under that under that mom or that dad and be like, No, you 
don't have to keep floating down the river. Like pump the brakes. You can get off this ride anytime you want because you are the owner of this ride. And, you know, it's, it's your duty and your obligation to, to make sure that you are as informed as you can be um, in any of those decisions that you make for your child. And the ramifications of this one, I think are just so significant, you know, cardiac issues. I just don't think that people understand the, the lifelong, um, you know, ramifications of myocarditis and the potential sequelae from that. Right. And I, so the, the story um, that I posted on my Instagram at nurse for natives um, has just gone viral. And I think we'll close out the show with this point. Um, we have a few minutes left, but the it's a mother out of um, Utah. Um, last name is Romney, and uh, the son is uh, Everest Romney, and he is a um, 18 year old um, basketball player, six foot nine. And I know you, know, you and I both have basketball players, um, but she she came out and said that he was taken to the ICU with blood clots in the brain last April, nine days after receiving the um, COVID vaccine, and even the medical records stated that the blood clots were an adverse reaction to the vaccine. But mm. she says this, you all know someone this has happened to. It's not as rare as people think. It is true. It is not misinformation. I'm happy to share his medical records with anyone who wants to see for themselves. The vaccine has altered his life path forever. He is lucky to be alive today, but his life will never be the same. In 2021, everyone who talked about this had their social media pages frozen. We need truth in reporting these events. It is not rare, and it happened to us. And mm -hmm. I know you and I had talked about, um, we know, you were saying, you know, six degrees of separation, know somebody that has just died and, you know, unexpectedly and shouldn't have died based on age and, you know, um, you know, their lifestyle and stuff. Uh, but th this is important, you know, wouldn't you agree? I mean, I think it's probably more like two or three degrees of separation. It's definitely less than six, that's for sure. Um, and I, I don't ever remember a time in my life as an adult, right? I'm 41 years old. I don't ever remember a time in my adult life wherein casual conversation or day-to-day -day conversations where you hear, oh, I, I just lost so-and-so, or my husband had to fly back to wherever he, he lost his brother suddenly, right? Mm -hmm. With no other, with no, with no, with no other backstory, right? Like, oh yeah, my, my husband just lost his brother, but he had been suffering from, or we, we kind of saw it coming. No, it, it's literally, that's the end of the statement. <laughs> they died suddenly, they died um, unexpectedly. Right. And yeah, to be aware of that, that this is happening guys. And, and it is so important more now than ever to speak our truth. We have got to not make this shameful. Do you remember when COVID first came out and nobody wanted to say that they had COVID because there was this stigma attached to them that, oh, you were out where you weren't supposed to be. 
or you went to this event and you shouldn't have gone to that event and now you got COVID. And then we realize that it is everywhere and it's not a shameful disease. Let's please not make these vaccine injuries shameful because the more that we put it out there and we, you know, use our words because words are power. We, they have an energy attached to them. And so when you speak your truth out there, you know, it is received. People hear you. There's a lot of people out there that feel alone and isolated and shameful. And we really need to open up our hearts, uh, be loving, be kind, extend grace. You know, I'm still, you know, extending grace to the nurses that are in the hospital um, being overworked and, and the patients that are at risk. Um, I have my own opinions on it, but certainly at the heart of who I am, um, you know, grace and kindness and love is at the forefront. So that's all the time we have today, friends. But remember, we are here on air five days a week, Monday through Friday at 10 a.m. Eastern and 11 p.m. Um, for an encore presentation. Please be sure to tune in and listen to myself and my amazing sister nurses. As we walk you through all these hot topics, we will empower you with information and education. We will, we will advocate and we will stand in the gap for you because we are nurses and that is what we do. I'm your host, Nurse Jody O'Malley, and you can find me here every Friday morning with an encore or at, at 10 a.m., sorry, and then at 11 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Um, join us as we continue to shine the light in the darkness. It's time and this is